Well, good evening, everybody. I am going to get started just because I have a lot that I have to cover. Um, this is one where when I started it, I'm like, ah, it won't be that long. And by the time I was done, it was longer than all my all the rest in terms of slides. But we'll see. If I don't go on as many rabbit trails, I think I could get this done. But this particular lesson is uh, Catholic mysticism in the Renaissance. Um, we're really covering spiritual and intellectual um, movements from the 14th to the 16th centuries. And if I could finish this, then I think we only have one lesson left after this. And so... Um, that, that's the plan. And also, I would like to add the great witch hunts to the end of this lesson as well, because where else am I going to fit them? And as you've probably heard, there was a elongated period of European history where a lot of people were killed for being accused of being witches. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. So jumping right into this introduction, in the 14th century, which means the 1300s, there was a big flowering of mysticism as lay persons, so not, we're not talking about priests and bishops, we're talking about regular people, they were seeking personal experiences with God. Now, they were loyal Catholics, but what they were saying undermined Catholic authority. And a lot of this is going to lay some groundwork for the Reformation. Um, the most important intellectual movement of the time, this will be the second thing we'll talk about, is the Renaissance. And it represented, I guess you could say, the end of the Middle Ages, and the medieval norms were being questioned, rejected. The whole Middle Ages was being really just repudiated and insulted by the Renaissance. Um, and the Renaissance also undermined the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, it did so in a lot of ways. And we're going to see that the way of the Renaissance thinking, their manner of thought, paved the way for two movements that happened at the same time, the scientific revolution and the Reformation. And those are both things that would be covered in church history too. But the Renaissance really becomes the trampoline um, for those. Um, and so, yeah, the Renaissance is going to be the forerunner of the Reformation because the Reformers were all deeply affected by the ways and thinking and aspects, certain aspects of the Renaissance. So I'm going to start with mysticism. That's the one I could get through fastest. That way I could get to the Renaissance because that is where I have a lot of material. So during the 14th century, again, the 1300s, um, there was a blossoming of mysticism in the Catholic Church. And just in case you don't remember what mysticism is, it's the idea of you having a personal experience with God. You're not experiencing God or learning Him through Scripture or being taught, but it's almost like you, it's esoteric. You meditate. You're in your own mind contemplating either on creation or trying to imagine God, and then you feel like you have a vision of the divine. And so it's almost like you're learning about God on your own, apart from Scripture. And so, yeah, obviously, as Protestants, we're not going to be uh, mystics. Um, but during this time, there's going to be a, a resurgence of that. And you have more and more people who are thirsting for this. Why? Think about it. Roman Catholicism is all about you only experience God through these sacraments. And these sacraments, you only get through a priest. It seemed so mechanical. So if people thought it was possible, apart from the mechanical nature of these sacraments, to have their own experience with God, their own, like, wow, I feel that he's real and that he loves me, then that is going to draw a lot of people. And furthermore, only priests and bishops with apostolic succession could give you a sacrament. But the claim of mysticism is everybody has access to God, um, and you don't need that middleman. And so you can see why mysticism is going to have a wide appeal. 
So it starts with three German Dominican preachers, Eckhart von Hachheim, uh, which is his life dates are 1260 to 1327. And then he had two disciples, Johann Thaler, 1300 to 1361, and Heinrich Suso, 1295 to 1360. Um, and these three together are going to get this, this ball rolling. So Eckhart was known as Meester Eichhardt, which you might think is Mister, but it's actually Master um, in German. And him and his two disciples formed this mystic impulse, and it stayed within the Dominican friars for a while. But then it spread to what are called the Beguines. And what's a Beguine? It's a religious order of laypersons. You already know you got religious orders of, of monks. They're not laypersons. Beguines are laypersons trying to kind of live the monastic life. Um, but they're doing so without that apostolic succession. Now, the writings of these three men will eventually spread, and it will lead to the, the emergence of a wider group that was called the Friends of God. And it's going to be in both Germany and Swiss territories. Which, by the way, think of the Protestant Reformation. What areas does it first start? Germany and then the Swiss areas. So, again, there's some overlap here. Now, one of the most famous mystics was Catherine of Siena. That's right, a woman. Um, so Catherine of Siena, her life dates were 1347 to 1380. Um, and she was what you would call a Dominican tertiary. You're like, what in the world is a tertiary? A tertiary is a person that places him or herself under the spiritual discipline of a monastic order, but they take no vow. So I'm going to live like a Dominican, but I'm not vowing that I will. That way, if I choose not to later, no harm, no foul. I could, I could leave at will. Um, I'm not bound to this to where, you know, my words, my bond type of thing. It, it's kind of like Jesus said, don't take vows. And of course, I preached on that. It's not an absolute prohibition of vows. But tertiaries were the type who would say, we don't need a vow to be under a monastic discipline. And so she was like that. She was that kind of person. Now, through her mysticism, for some reason, she drew a lot of people, got a lot of followers. Um, she actually wrote a decent amount of works, 400 letters that offered spiritual counsel. And these weren't just letters to like nobodies. Some of these letters were to popes and rulers. And so somehow she got that kind of influence. Uh, she participated in church politics at the highest levels. Um, in fact, one of the goals of her career was to travel between France and Northern Italy to convince the popes to move back to Italy. Remember when I was talking about in the last lesson about papal decline, how you had the Babylonian captivity, as they called it, where the popes were in France for almost 70 years. And they shouldn't have been, not, not if you understand Catholic doctrine. So she was trying to push them back to uh, Rome, and then all of a sudden she conveniently has a vision where God shows her it must go back to Rome. And she promotes this vision, and it just happens that the last pope of uh, the Avion era really took what she said to heart, and because of her vision, he moved it back to Rome. So she actually influenced the end of this, uh, this Babylonian captivity. Um, now, so she had a big deal, and there's uh, one progressive historian that's made a bigger deal out of her than should be made, but she was a big deal. You don't have to exaggerate 
how big of a deal she was. And this person was doing that to try to undermine evangelical complementarianism. If you don't know what that means, don't worry. But anyhow, mysticism also spread to England, where uh, notable female mystics rose to prominence there as well. There are quite a few famous uh, female mystics from the the, uh, English church at this time. Problem is, if I go into all this, we'll never finish. So I'm just hitting the main points as fast as I can. Um, so mysticism, what did these people all have in common? Whether they're, you know, Meesters in German or, you know, uh, Catherine of Siena from North Italy or these ladies in England, what do they have in common? Well, regardless of what country they're from, they use the native language of their country rather than Latin. That's going to be something that the Reformation takes as well, right? Bring the Bible to people in their own language. Now, these guys weren't saying that, but they were teaching and, 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 and spreading their mystic methods in people's languages. Furthermore, they weren't aiming just at the scholars and the monks. They were aiming at regular people. They emphasized the centrality of preaching and teaching, because remember, the Roman church was emphasizing sacraments. But they were saying, no, you need to hear God's word. You need to hear it taught. And again, that's going to be something the Reformation picks up. They place a high value on studying the New Testament. Uh, They also encouraged holy living. Doing these sacraments is one thing, but you're supposed to be living in a way that is Christ-centered. And most importantly, they said that, listen, Christ is immediately available to any believer. Okay, He's not locked up inside the priests and the sacraments, which again is a very important point to make in the Middle Ages. So, so big deal there. Um, and because of this, I think it goes without saying that the official church is going to be suspicious of these people. What do you mean that Christ isn't locked up inside the sacraments? What do you mean every individual can experience him without the church? Um, Why are you emphasizing, you know, people's, I guess you could say, personal experiences over against the institutional church? And so, yeah, they're going to run into trouble. For example, Pope John uh, XXII posthumously condemns Eckhart. And 1329 says he was a heretic. And, and here's the thing. I, I don't want to just completely be uh, slamming on that Pope. Eckhart said some things that blurred the creator-creature distinction. If I were to just go off his writings alone, I would have condemned him as well. Because it sounded like in his writings, he was saying the reason that we can access Christ directly is because within our soul, there's an uncreated eternal part of us. And that's not true. If, we are, if any part of us is uncreated and eternal, then that means that that's part of God, right? Because only God is uncreated and eternal. Now, Eckhart realized this caused problems, and he said, well, I didn't really mean that. And so when he explained himself, he said what he meant matches with orthodox doctrine. And so if you take him at his word rather than at his writings, then he would say, it's not as bad as you think. I'm not saying we're eternal. Uh, we're completely different from, uh, from God. Um, so again, uh, I... If we take him at his word, he was orthodox, but some of his writings did seem kind of weird. But I do think the Pope would have excommunicated him anyway, uh, because what he was teaching did undermine Roman Catholic authority. At the end of the day, though, here's what I want you to understand. The mystics were not reformers. They were all loyal Roman Catholics. They were just trying to experience God in a way that was different than uh, what was normal. And the way they did that inherently undermine church authority.
Okay, so you can't get around that. Martin Luther was actually heavily influenced by the famous writings of the German mystics. And so he didn't find them to be problematic. Now, at the same time the mystics were popping up, there's something else that's going to pop up where the technical title of it is Devotion Moderna. Uh, has nothing to do with the vaccine, okay? You're not devoted to a, a COVID vax, right? Because uh, Moderna, never mind. But anyhow, uh, you know, it's the modern way is what it stands for. There, there's a modern way of serving God. And it was founded by Gerard Groot. He lived 1340 to 1384. He's from the Netherlands. And he argued that the ideal religious life is going to be done in community, but it's going to be the establishment of brotherhoods and sisterhoods. And he's like, a bunch of men should get together and live together and do life together. And women should do the same thing. They'll live, they'll pray, they'll follow Christ together, but we will not become monks and nuns because we don't see that in the Bible. We're not going to be monks and nuns. We're not going to be begging people. We will work for a living. We will take no monastic vows. We're just going to work hard and then encourage each other in spiritual living. And this became really popular. And I could see why it would become popular, because I'll tell you, doing the Christian life together is easier than doing it alone. And being able to do it in this way, I think, is way superior to sitting in a mass where you don't understand the language and you're doing these sacraments in a very mechanical way as if that's what's keeping you right with God. These guys are like, no, we're going to read the Bible together. We're going to pray together. We're going to do good works together. We're going to live holy lives together, and we're not going to be bums. We will actually produce something that helps society. This movement was embraced by a lot of Catholics and embraced by a lot of Reformers. And I think as Protestant Christians today, we can look back on this and say, you know, there's some good stuff to this. Now, the female groups, the sisterhoods, I don't know what it was about them, but the majority of them would start off fine, and then eventually they become nuns. I, I don't know why. They, at some point, it's not good enough for them just to do this with no vow. They then start taking monastic vows, where the, the male groups, the brotherhoods, tended to stick with Groot's original vision. And, uh, and pretty much they would live this life, and they didn't need to take vows and becomes monk, become monks. The most famous group of them were the Brothers of the Common Life, um, and they would set up public schools, teach boys in these public schools. Um, they would teach people literacy so that they could read their Bibles. And again, the Brothers of the Common Life, they influenced some of the most prominent Catholics of the 1500s and the most prominent Reformers. So again, this type of movement, I think, was able to blend in to, um, to really Protestantism and Catholicism. But anyhow, the most famous work that came out of the uh, Devotion Moderna was uh, the Imitation of Christ. Now, again, this modern way of serving God it emphasizes closeness of the individual believer. Um, and it tells you, guess what? If you're going to follow Christ, what do you have to do? Take up, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. All the stuff we would say that it felt like it was brand new to Europeans at this time. And that's a, a slam on the institutional church, I think. Again, the most influential writing was written by Thomas A. Kempis, 1380 to 1471. And I'm going to tell you, this work is beloved by Catholics 
and it is beloved by Protestants. It was one of Martin Luther's favorite works. And I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read parts of it. It is amazing. And that's why there's a lot of uh, Christians today that will even tell you for your spiritual disciplines, pick this up, read it. You will love Christ more because of it. Um, the only warning we would give is it does place emphasis on the mass and we don't believe in the mass because we don't believe in transubstantiation. But if you throw that part out, then um, it's, uh, if you throw that part out, it's pretty much you're going to read it and you're going to be like, this is good stuff. It challenges the reader to set his heart on eternal realities and to walk with Jesus in every aspect of daily life. So you're doing your regular daily stuff and it's talking to you directly. Second person singular. Like you're like, wow, this person's like having a conversation with me as, as you're reading it. And, um, and these daily things that you're doing, these, these everyday things, um, pretty much um, the, the, these everyday things, you're to do them in light of the perfect age to come. Again, music to my ears, right? Okay, so that covers mysticism. That covers the, the whole brotherhoods and sisterhoods of the uh, devotion moderna. So that covers the 1300s. That covers mysticism. Now I want to jump to the Renaissance where I will be spending the majority of my time. And again, a lot I have to say about this because there's a lot to say. You've all heard of the Renaissance. Um, you've maybe even like heard of Renaissance fairs and it was taught to you in school in both seventh grade and you know, 10th grade and, you know, all this stuff. Or like Albert, you're looking at me. I've never heard of this. I know he has. You were just probably playing games. But anyhow, so, uh, so the Renaissance, it begins in Italy in the second half of the 14th century, second half of the 1300s, and eventually it spreads across all of Western Europe. And this thing, more than anything, is going to change people's values and worldview, the way people approach life. Uh, it's going to, in my opinion, it's, it, it's what... It's what shifts Europe away from the Middle Ages, uh, the medieval period, in, in the way of thinking that we've been talking about for like the last 10 weeks, um, changes during this time. So at its core, the Renaissance was a movement that restored and adored ancient Greek and Roman culture. So you go back to the, the Greek Empire of Alexander and the Roman Empire that came after, and these guys fought for the rebirth of its culture, but they wanted it in their time. The word renaissance, you may know, is the French word for rebirth. Rebirth of what? Of the Roman Greco culture that got lost. Uh, so there's this now newfound commitment to saying, well, what was Europe like before the church? What was it like before the medieval period? Um, and the whole reason they were able to do this, remember, is because of the Crusades. Because in their interactions with the Muslims in the Middle East, a lot of the old Roman writings started being reintroduced to Europe. And then they're translating them to Latin. They're reading them and they're like, oh, this is interesting stuff. Now, it wasn't only a revival of literature, but it was also in terms of like rhetoric, philosophy, logic. So it focused on classic forms of thought, expression, and action. And they said the way that this is achieved is through the humanities. Now, you may have heard this if you've gone to college. You would say, well, I was a humanities major or my major fell under the humanities. That idea goes back to the Renaissance, right? So liberal arts goes back to the Middle Ages. 
humanities goes back to the Renaissance. What, what are the humanities? Pretty much it's grammar, rhetoric, poetry, history, and philosophy. And then, of course, they've added more stuff to it. But they would say this is the way you perfect yourself, by mastering these things. The humane studies were uh, contrasted with divine studies, meaning you got theology, which is the study of God, but then the humanities, which are the, the study of man. The humanities were seen as the way that we would perfect ourselves. And what they would tell you is the natural human needed to be refined. In other words, we're, we're kind of like a, a block. Think of Michelangelo making a sculpture. It's a block. It's the raw material. But he used tools and his imagination to shape it into his art. And they're saying we're kind of like those blocks. And the humanities are what will shape us into a cultured person. They'll make us authentically human. They recreate us in a sense. So with the Renaissance, a lot of emphasis was placed on humans as communicators. You should be effective in expressing your thoughts and values. And how do you do that? In writing, speech, music, and visual art. Okay? Those are the ways that we communicate. Those are the ways that we express ourselves. And because this new emphasis on humanities over against just theology, it made it to where the Renaissance thinkers despised the medieval uh, Catholic. Well, they didn't despise it. They despised the Latin. And there's a reason for that. Um, Latin at this time, especially the Latin of the Middle Ages, was not pure Latin. Pure Latin is what the Romans spoke. But remember what I told you guys, I know it's been a long time, so you might have forgot, but remember when those Gothics invaded the Roman Empire and then eventually they, they interspersed with, uh, within the Roman Empire? They brought a bunch of Germanic Gothic words. Those words got absorbed into Latin. So these guys would say, you know, the Latin of the church is a bastardized Latin. It has been infiltrated by these barbaric words. If you want pure Latin, you got to go back to the Roman Empire period. Um, and that's when Latin was Latin. You know, make Latin Latin again. What is it, Mala or <laughs> whatever. But, uh, but anyhow, so um, that was a big, big thing they were pushing. And again, they're going to despise a lot of the culture and learning of the Middle Ages. And part of it's because they despise the language, um, you know, what the language became in that time. Now, when you get to the 19th century, which is the 1800s, scholars, historians coined the term humanism to describe all this. I say that because if you were to jump in a time machine and you were to go back to what we call the Renaissance um, and say, oh, you guys practice humanism, they'd be like, what? They didn't use that word. Um, so scholars 200 years ago came up with that word. And uh, it, it, as a way of describing what these guys did and, and how they thought. Now, humanism might raise your eyebrow because today humanism refers to atheists who don't believe in God. They're actually anti-Christian, anti-Bible. They're materialists. They don't believe in spirit or soul or anything like that. So today, a secular humanist is a God-hating evolutionist that, that denies God. Humanism back then didn't mean that, and secular back then didn't mean that. The Renaissance thinkers were secular humanists, but secular, as I'm going to explain somewhere here, I don't want to get ahead of myself, um, but secular just means y y you actually care about what happens in this world. That's what it meant back then. And then a humanist just means somebody who uh, studied grammar, rhetoric, logic, you know, history, and philosophy. That was a humanist. 
And so the thing is, humanism back then, most of the Renaissance humanists, they were pro-Christian. They weren't rejecting Christianity. They were rejecting the Middle Ages, but not Christianity. So their commitment to humanity and developing human culture was part of their Christian view of the world. They said God gives meaning and worth in this present life and in the life to come. And by the, word, by the way, the word secular in Latin just means present age. So, again, when people say secular means non-religious today or atheist, it, that's not what it actually means. Originally, it just meant present world. Because remember, we are people who live in this present evil age, but we're to live for the perfect age to come. And the medieval folks only focused on the perfect age to come, ignoring this present age. So when we say Renaissance people were secular, all we're saying is that they lived and did things that would benefit this age too but they didn't deny the age to come. So different meaning is all I'm saying. Um, again, they, they saw the medieval centuries as being a great time of ignorance. They're the ones who coined the term dark ages. And uh, I'll, I'll come back to that. Well, no, I say it right there. They called it the dark ages. They said it was a time of ignorance, superstition, and barbarism. Um, and, uh, and, and a lot of this comes from them Looking at, well, how do I say this? You have to ask yourself, how does the Christian balance life in this age and life in the age to come? The Middle Ages and the Renaissance answered these two questions differently, okay? So let me talk about how the Middle Ages answered that. The prevailing attitude of Catholicism was to have contempt for the present life, okay? This life is, there's nothing good about it. So contempt it. Instead, fix your mind on death, judgment, hell, and heaven. Meaning only focus on the eternal things. The only worthwhile part of your short life on earth is to prepare your soul for eternity because that's what lasts forever. Of course, there's truth to that. It's, they're right in what they're proclaiming, but wrong in what they're denying. I think that ends up being the problem. So if you were to say, what is the perfect human, a medieval Catholic would say it's a person who closely conforms themselves to Christ. And we would agree with that, but then their definition, I don't think we would agree with. They would say the person who's most like Christ is a monk, a monk or a nun that renounces the present world, gives up having a family, doesn't own any property, um, you know, practices asceticism, meaning denying themselves food and sleep and stuff like that so, to subdue their body and its passions, um, you know, through these tortures and, and spiritual disciplines, because they believe that's what Christ did. Now, there's a reason Christ wasn't married. He's the son of God. Um, there's a reason why, um, you know, he, he did it own property. I mean, he owns the whole world for crying out loud. Um, he's the Lord. And so, the, and, the, and the thing is, like, the stuff he did, he wasn't a person who, like, hurt himself, tortured himself, or anything like that. And the apostles had wives and stuff like that. So the medieval church, at some point, they, they missed what it was like to be the ideal Christian. But that's what they thought. And so the Renaissance challenges this. It shifted spiritual concern back to the present life, but it did so without denying the life to come. It said, listen, life here also has value. Because when God created this world, he said it was very good. And even though it's fallen, it's still there. There are things we are supposed to do here. Um, and one reason these guys liked 
the pagan works of Rome and Greece is because if you're reading the Middle Ages stuff, it's all focusing on that first answer of how we're supposed to live now, where at least the pagans were all about human achievement. They're like, let's build monuments. Let's, you know, advance things in, in, in this world. They weren't so much focused on the world to come. And so the Renaissance thinkers are like, look, we could take the best of both. We could take the world to come from the Middle Ages, but we could also take how do we live in this world right now from some of the, the pagan philosophers. How, we, how could we, uh, and, you know, for example, they would point to Plato. Plato was a guy who did think about eternity, but he was also a guy who wrote um, a treatise on how to create the perfect political society. Now, I think his treatise was dumb. It's called The Republic, and I read it. I'm like, it would never work. But he was at least thinking. He was at least thinking about... Uh, about how to create a fair political system, or somewhat fair. It wasn't really fair, but anyhow, he was trying, is my point. And so the thing is, the Renaissance people be like, look at him, that's the balance you want. Yes, let's think about God. Let's think of eternity, but let's also think of how to uh, live great in this world. And so the Renaissance humanists, moving, you know, talking a little more about this, because of how accomplished the Roman and the Greeks were in art, literature, architecture, and human achievement, Renaissance humanists looked back on that time as a golden age. And I got to say, like, when I was a history major in college, I was obsessed with the Roman Empire. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but the city of Rome had better sanitation, better design, and was more technologically advanced than Paris in the 1700s. So in a sense, if you were in the Renaissance and you were looking backward, you would think, you know what? Rome was advanced. I mean, come on. They had created the arch. They developed concrete. Um, the Colosseum, they could fill with water and have naval battles and then all of a sudden drain it. I mean, of course, the Colosseum was barbaric. But my point is the technological achievement of it, pretty, pretty intense. And so these guys look back on that time as that's the golden age of human culture. It's the perfect expression of the human spirit and its greatest values. And if you think about the sculptures and the art of the Renaissance, compare them to the surviving sculptures of the Roman period. Same, same kind of thing. You don't find them in medieval Europe because they didn't want to make images and in the in statues like that so in a sense it is a rebirth of the art philosophy and all that stuff of the roman greco world now if you're going to live in this world and and try to have humans reach their full potential you're going to reject monasticism because remember, monasticism is the idea that you withdraw from the world and that you let your body wither away as you focus on heaven. You, you may have heard that statement, you could be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. That's how they looked at the, the, the monks. Now, I would tell you this, if you're actually heavenly minded, you're going to be earthly good. Whatever these guys were doing was not being heavenly minded. But anyhow, the Renaissance thinkers advocated that an active and successful life is going to come through secular pursuits. And I already mentioned this. Secular comes from seculum, which means present age, meaning what governs the present age? Politics, city life, statecraft, sometimes even war. These are the spheres of human action, and these are necessary things, things that we need to be proficient at. You also get, in some sense, the birth of individualism. 
See, ancient societies were more about the collective. If you notice in America, we're more about individuals. That starts with the Renaissance. Um, I think both like collectivism and individualism in their extreme are problematic. And we're seeing extreme individualism right now where somebody would say, well, I think I'm a woman even though I'm biologically a man. And they value the individual even over reality. That's just crazy. And of course, you could go to a communist country where they value the collective more than, than the individual to where as soon as you're not useful to the society, they could just kill you like a, a racehorse because you're not producing anymore. That's an extreme there as well. I think biblically, there is an emphasis on both the individual and the collective. And, and I think the Renaissance focus on individualism was nowhere near as bad as what we're dealing with today. But this is where it gets its start. There was a fascination of personal self-expression and self-development. You may have heard the phrase Renaissance man. Anybody know what that means? What, what does it mean, Rachel? Correct. A person who's educated in everything. A Renaissance man would be an expert inventor, expert scientist, expert poet, expert writer, expert sculptor, expert architect. So you look at Leonardo da Vinci, he did it all. Now, by the time you get to the 1800s, they say, you know, if there's a world of experts, there's no such thing as Renaissance men anymore, uh, meaning each field gets so deep, no man has enough time or woman to be an expert at everything. So nobody believes in the Renaissance man anymore. But in this time, they thought to perfect yourself, you could literally become great at everything. And some of them tried that. Um, so anyhow, uh, also during this time, biographies would no longer be limited to just religious leaders. Now, great men in the secular world as well. Um, now, for the regular, because there's two kinds of humanists. You have the regular Renaissance humanists, and you're going to have Christian humanists. Both were Christian, but the emphasis was different. For a regular Renaissance humanist, their main goal was just focusing on this life right now. And they said, we're going to focus on Cicero and Virgil and Seneca. And we're not going to so much read the church fathers or the New Testament. We're going to read the pagans. Now, they said they were Christian and they would believe everything the church said you have to believe. But their focus in life was to learn how to live from the pagans. Contrast that with the Christian humanists. They take the ideals of the Renaissance, but... Christianity and Christian learning is going to be a huge, huge part of it. Um, so their vision was we're not going to limit ourselves to pagan sources, but all the great works of Western civilization. And there were some great works written during the Middle Ages. Guys, there's brilliant Christians like Bernard of Clairvaux and, and guys like that. And so um, they're going to they're going to read that stuff. And of course, they're going to read the church fathers. And a lot of these guys are really going to um, cling to Augustine. Very much. They're going to dive into scholarly study of the Greek New Testament and the patristics. And by the way, this is going to pave the way for the Reformation. And I think you'll see hints of that um, as, as I talk about this. So here's what they would say. They would say, spiritually speaking, because remember, the Renaissance said politically and, and in a human sense, Roman Greco period was the golden age. These guys would say, well, let's add to that. There was also a spiritual golden age. And the spiritual golden age was the days of the apostles and the early church. That was the spiritual golden age. So what we want is like a, a human society golden age of the Romans married together with the spiritual golden age of the apostles and the early church. That is the only hope for Western civilization, they would say. 
And I think that a lot of people today, by this definition, would probably be a form of Christian humanist. Um, it was a quest for a humanistic culture based on the best of the world and the best of, uh, of what we have in the church. Um, you may have heard this phrase, a famous expression of this time was ad fontes, uh, which means to the sources. Where do you learn truth? By going back to the original sources, right? So if you want to know what the Bible teaches, don't go to Latin Vulgate. That's Jerome's translation. Learn Greek, go to the Greek manuscripts, back to the sources. Um, and this is a, a famous part. Uh, it became a, a rally cry of the Reformation. Um, and it's one of my rally cries. You know, you want to know what you're talking about? Go to the sources. Anyhow, that gives you the broad picture of the Renaissance. Now what I'm going to do is break it down by country. Um, it starts in Italy. And there is a sense of a poetic echo because what was the Roman Empire? It was Italy. You know, it's just an ancient world. So it makes sense if there's going to be a rebirth of that culture. That would be weird if it was in England. Let's just put it that way. You know, nice for the Romans to rebirth their own, their own culture in that sense, because Italy was the heartland of the Roman Empire. Um, but it was not a united empire. Italy was actually five different political communities. Milan, Venice, Florence, Naples, Papal states, they were all independent from each other. Uh, it will, there will be no such thing as Italy until the 1800s. Okay? Um, now, Italian humanism is going to begin in those three northern cities of Italy, northern Italian cities, Milan, Venice, and Florence. And the reason this is even possible is because during the Crusades, those cities got really rich from trade and transportation, and all that kind of stuff. The Crusades made them rich enough to where they were able to become independent. And something that a lot of people don't know is during this time, a lot of these city-states, they didn't raise their own armies, but they had a lot of money. And if you have money, you could buy an army. And you want to know who they paid? The Swiss. You know how like the Swiss are always neutral? Even back then they were. So if, let's say, Florence wanted to go to war with Venice, each of them would hire a Swiss army of mercenaries. And then the battle would be decided out on the field between Swiss killing each other because one city paid this group of Swiss and then this city paid the other group of Swiss. And most kings during this time wanted Swiss bodyguards. You know, so apparently we might say, oh, the, they're these neutral little wimps. They were neutral, but they weren't wimps. Um, you know, they, they were definitely warriors back then, but that doesn't have anything to do with this. Anyhow, so... These cities are able to be independent, wealthy, and so they're able to pursue uh, this, this Renaissance kind of learning. Now, the first major Italian Renaissance figure was Francesco Petrarch. You may have heard of him, 1304 to 1374. Um, he was from Florence. He grew up in Avion during the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. For the first half of his life, he lives as a Catholic priest, but he was not called. Um, I'm not sure why he chose to be a priest, but he didn't want to be a priest. He didn't actually even believe. Um, he sired illegitimate children, had a lot of scandalous love affairs. Um, but then in 1350, 1350, he experiences a life-changing conversion. And when you read what he says, it sounds like a legitimate conversion. He, he repented and believed on Jesus. And at that point, because he was addicted to sexual sin, it went away. He's like, I am now freed by Christ from this. And so he actually will live the rest of his life um, for Christ. Now, Petrarch, um, you know, where does he get his philosophy and his style? He's going to get it from the pagan writers, Cicero, 
which if we're going to be real accurate, it's Cicero. But I just don't like saying it that way. So Cicero, Virgil, and Seneca, um, they were the best writers of the Roman era. And he was able to imitate them very well and write on their level. Um, in fact, it gained him international fame while he was still alive. Uh, that's, that's pretty, <laughs> pretty impressive. And what he was definitely known for was his Italian love poems. I don't know if he wrote those before his conversion or not, but I mean, he was a smoothie and maybe that's how as a priest, he got all those mistresses, not a good thing. But anyhow, after he converted to Christ, um, he dedicated his thinking to Augustine of Hippo. He's like, this is going to be the one who directs my, my spiritual thinking. I'll learn how to write from the pagans, but I'm going to learn how to live for God from Augustine. Uh, he always had a copy of Confessions on him. And by the way, if you've never read Augustine's Confessions, it is worth your time. Um, man, when I read that, I promised myself I'd read it every year, and of course I haven't. But I mean, the point is, when I did read it, it, it moved me. I'm like, man, this guy... He's like all of us. We, you know, we all have these these same struggles, and you just you feel for him as he's describing, really his life of unbelief. And he said, "My heart was restless until it learned to rest in Christ," and that's that's just true. And and I think Petrarch had a very similar life, living as a just an absolute moral chump, and then he is drawn to Christ, and he's changed, and all he wants to do is show other people how how to get there. Um, now, because he was an Augustinian, he rejects Aristotle in favor of Plato, which is going to make him very critical of scholasticism. Remember how I was talking about scholasticism for two full weeks and how they just loved Aristotle and thought Aristotle was better than Plato? This is going to be a big point of contention between the Renaissance and scholasticism. One is Aristotelian, the other is going to be Platonic. And so he's going to, Petrarch is definitely, as the first Renaissance thinker, he's going to be hostile to scholasticism. Most humanists will. Most humanists will complain that scholasticism was overly complicated. Remember how I told you that they nicknamed uh, Dun Scotus? They pretty much said he was an idiot, and that's where we get the word dunce from now. Even though Scotus was smart, it was these guys who were saying anybody who cannot communicate their beliefs in a simple way and has to make it all complicated and super philosophical and super speculative, they must be idiots. Uh, they must be dunces. Uh, and, and so, yeah, these guys thought that, listen, if you look at humanist thought, I mean, if you look at uh, uh, scholastic thought, it's complicated, philosophical, it's divorced from scripture, it's speculative, and it's expressed in that messed up uh, Latin, that uh, messed up form of, of medieval Latin. The schoolmen, which were the scholastics, they studied the Latin Vulgate. They're like, well, so the humanists are like, well, what kind of theologians are these? They're reading a translation. A real theologian will learn Greek and Hebrew and go study um, the source, ad fontes, right? So even though the scholastics represent, I would say, the peak of medieval Catholic learning, the Renaissance people were taking them to school on some of these things. You read Latin, we'll read Greek and Hebrew. You're going to be overcomplicated and overspeculative. We're going to be more biblical. We're going to be more precise. Now, I wouldn't say necessarily that they were more biblical, um, but in some things they were. Now, the one of the largest uh, areas where there's going to be some, uh, I guess, disdain between Renaissance humanists and scholastics was, again, 
the whole idea of Plato versus Aristotle. Because, and, and not only that, remember Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas was like the chief scholastic thinker. And even though he was Augustinian, because of his commitments to Aristotle, he started moving away from the doctrine of original sin. He, he watered it down um, and watered down the idea that, that human nature is in bondage to sin. And then after Aquinas, you get guys like William of Ockham, which were, they were Pelagians, which they thought like, well, we're, we don't even have a sin nature. If we do, it's not that bad, you know, and we could earn salvation through good works. That's where some of the later scholastics went. And so good on some of these Renaissance people, they looked at that and said, that's heresy. Um, and so they, they weren't wrong on that. But of course, not every Renaissance humanist was as religious as, as Petrarch. Um, but my point is, since a lot of the Christian humanists admired Augustine, they tended to despise scholasticism. Uh, but as I said, not all Christian humanists were decidedly Augustinian. At the, near the end of this lesson, I'm going to get to probably the most famous Renaissance thinker of all time, Erasmus. You may have heard of him, you may not have, but you'll hear of him today. And Erasmus is going to move away from Augustine's doctrine of original sin um, and predestination. And so some humanists will be anti-Augustine, but a lot of the early ones were very much Augustine and Augustinian, and I would say they were biblical. Um, now with Petrarch, we can see in a single individual, so we can look at him and you can really see what Christian humanism is. And what I mean is he contempted the medieval period as the Dark Ages. If you want to know who coined the term, it was him. Petrarch is the one who came up with the word Dark Ages. Now, it's not like the sun didn't rise back then. And a lot of historians today say, yeah, it wasn't really the Dark Ages. It's just the bias of the Renaissance. But he's the one who coined the term. So a Christian humanist despised the Middle Ages. They believed that the golden age of civilization was Greece and Rome, but that the spiritual golden age was the apostles and the church fathers. He possessed a new fervor for Plato that walked away from scholasticism's uh, commitment to Aristotle. He admired ancient Latin rather than the, the messed up version of the Middle Ages, and he admired the way the ancient Romans wrote. And then finally, he believed that philosophy and theology should revolve around humanity and human life. Like, they should actually serve in making things better in this life. Um, and it should assist in our relationship, the relationship between humans and God. Now, that's a revitalization of Italian or ancient Roman learning. What about ancient Greek learning? Because, you know, a lot of this started in ancient Greece. There's going to be... Greek scholars relocated to these Italian cities because of what was happening in Byzantium. Now, I haven't talked about this yet. I'm hoping to next time, but most of you know that the Ottoman Empire eventually destroys the remaining Byzantine Empire. They will conquer Constantinople, rename it Istanbul, which is Istanbuloni, but they did. And, um, and when that was all going down and you were getting close to that day, a lot of people were smart. They read the field and they got out of Constantinople and came to Italy. And what did they bring with them? Well, they were native Greek speakers that never lost touch with the ancient Greek culture and ancient Greek writings. And so they come to these Italian cities and they're going to bring uh, a lot of this stuff. So some of the famous ones were Manuel Chrysoloras, uh, 1355 to 1415. Um, 
He lectured Greek studies at Florence University. Another one was uh, Gemistos uh, Platon, 1355 to 1450. Uh, he was a Platonic expert. Um, and his famous work was called Difference Between Plato and Aristotle, which he goes to make this elaborate argument of why Aristotle sucks and Plato really is the master, that his student failed to overcome him. And so how dumb are these scholastics for thinking Aristotle was better? Um, and again, a lot of people are going to be convinced. Aristotle's heyday is going to kind of diminish, and from the Renaissance on, people are going to be uh, more, uh, more back into Plato. Um, now, the Greek studies reach its height in 1462 when you have the founding of the Platonic Academy in Florence. They actually, because remember, Plato's Academy was shut down, I'm trying to think what century, you know, in the early church period. Now it's being reborn, but in Florence, and the whole goal was to, like, let, let's make it like it was back in the ancient time. It was directed by Marsilio Ficino, uh, 1433 to 1499. He was a Catholic priest that thought he could blend Christianity with Neoplatonism. Um, but what does he mean by that? He thought Plato was just as inspired as the Bible, and that's just ridiculous. Ridiculous. Plato wasn't inspired at all. Um, now, the finest student of this Platonic Academy was uh, Mirandola, um, Giovanni Pico Dea Mirandola, uh, 1463 to 1494. So he didn't live that long, but he left a mark. Um, and one thing that's interesting is he was both a student of philosophy and Jewish mysticism, or Kabbalah, which was becoming, which was growing into its own during this time. Um, now, later in his life, he will become a disciple of Savonarola. You don't know who he is yet, but if I get far enough, you will. Um, and that's going to change his life. Some will say for the worse, some will say for the better. But before we get to that, um, before he changed and became a disciple of this guy, um, he wrote the Oration on the Dignity of Man, which is probably the most celebrated Renaissance writing. Um, and by the way, you may have noticed, like, where's all the art and the paintings and the sculptures? I thought that's what the Renaissance is about, man. That's one small part of the Renaissance. The Renaissance, more than anything, was a philosophical, intellectual movement that had an art form that went along with it. But the Renaissance was a lot more than art. Art's just a tiny little piece of it. Um, so that's why we're talking about ideas and thinkers and stuff like that. But anyhow, uh, Mirandola argued that God placed humans in the universe and gave us these abilities so we could study, investigate, and understand things. That we should look at creation and learn from it rather than just contemplate on it. Why not experiment with it? Why not really, really study things and see what we can learn? He claimed that we exist in between animals and angels, and that if we're foolish, we could fall to the point where we live like beasts, or if we cultivate ourselves with the humanities, then we could rise to the level of angels and be like many gods or whatever. You know, I'm not saying that we could create like God can, but we're creative. We could build sculptures, make cities, and, and stuff like that. And a lot of people still think this today, that if we don't really build our character, then we're going to live like animals. And you could go into some neighborhoods and people all do behave like animals. They just do. Um, and, and it's just problematic. But then you go to some places and it's really cultured. And um, like, I'll tell you, if you've never been to South Korea, if you go, that place is so clean, so modern. It's just, it, it feels like, like it's 20 years ahead of us. 
instead of technology and everything. But then I've gone to some places where it's like, do they even read, you know, and, uh, and where's the plumbing? I mean, you know, so it's just, and so what he's saying is, is humans that will develop themselves could rise to the level where we're like angels. Those who refuse are going to live, live like animals. And I think that's going to definitely affect Western thinking in, in, in a lot of ways. And it's going to be one of the ideas, I think, that will motivate the scientific revolution later. Now, he did have a big confidence in human reasoning, um, thought that, uh, that human reason and progress within uh, a Christian framework of belief could just lead us to the next level of human civilization. But he took it all back. Once he becomes the disciple of Savonarola, he takes it all back. We suck. We're sinners. You know, and then everything he writes for the rest of his life is, is very somber, very somber. So I'll be talking about uh, Savonarola in a little bit, but yeah, he was, uh, he was a guy that tried to walk back a lot of the Renaissance, um, and eventually he'll get killed, but, uh, but he had a, a successful run for a while. Now, um, another big thing that's going to come out of the Italian Renaissance is the scholarly study of the early church, which is very, very important. This is a key piece that's going to be necessary for the Reformation to come later. The greatest of all Italian scholars, and I've mentioned him before, was Lorenzo Valla. Uh, life dates 1406 to 1457. Um, I mean, this guy was, well, I'll just read what's on this. You know, he was a native of Rome, ordained to the priesthood in 1431. He was a lecturer. Um, he studied, wrote, and Pope Nicholas was his patron. He's the one who, you know, funded all this guy's work. And also King Alfonso I of Naples was a patron of his as well. So he had big guys backing him. Um, he was religious. He was an Augustinian, zealous. And he said, you know what? We need to go back to the sources. We need to study the Greek New Testament. He's going to push this big time. And because he studied the New Testament so carefully, he became very critical of ancient Catholic traditions. He said, actually, when you look at what the Bible says, it contradicts what these Catholics are saying. So his two greatest works, and I mentioned one of these a long time ago, but it's the Donation of Constantine, or the, the long title of it is uh, Concerning the False Credit and Eminence of the Donation of Constantine. In short, people just call it Donation of Constantine. He wrote that in 1440. His next big work was Annotations on the New Testament. Let me just remind you about the Donation of Constantine. Um, he, if you go back to the 8th century, Pope Stephen claimed that he had a letter that was handwritten from Constantine back in the 300s, where Constantine gave central Italy and really most of Western Europe to the Pope. The, the story was Constantine had incurable leprosy. The Pope healed him, and Constantine then ceded Italy and most of Europe to the authority of the Pope. And, of course, this document didn't emerge till the, the 8th century, um, but it was used in the 8th century by Pope Stephen to convince the, the Franks you know, to convince the Franks that, uh, that pretty much uh, this, all this land was supposed to be under the Pope's control anyway. And everybody believed it. And so for 700 years, you have Popes controlling territory, and, and it was assumed to be legitimate. Lorenzo Valla 
looked at the donation of Constantine and said, Constantine did not write this. You want to know how I could prove it? He said, because there are too many Gothic words, too many words that came into Latin much after the time of Constantine. Constantine lived in the 300s. Latin was pure in the 300s. Look, let me show you this word, this word, this word, this word. You're not going to find these words anywhere in any Latin document prior to the Gothic invasions of Europe. So he's like, so if you look at this, it was clear this was written in the 8th century. Huh, when did it first appear in history? Oh, the 8th century. So what he was able to show is Pope Stephen was a, a charlatan. And, and, and then he said, because this is a lie, papacy needs to give back all this land and just focus on spiritual things. Now, a later pope is going to excommunicate him after his death, right? Because he's exposing, exposing the truth here. Now, uh, another... The, the other important thing he wrote was annotations, where he's taking the Latin Vulgate and comparing it to the Greek New Testament, and he just marks all the errors of the Latin. This is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And, just, and then he writes this book called Annotations, where he articulates every single error. And some of these made a, a, a big difference. Um, now, he did not publish this because he knew this would be the type of thing that would cost him his patronage. So he wrote it and then sat on it, and then he died. But a while later, Erasmus, who was greatly influenced by Vala, published it after his death, and that was in 1505. And this is going to definitely be a key factor in the Protestant Reformation, because everybody's going to be using Vala's um, his notes here. Like, look, the Vulgate's wrong here, 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 and here. He proved his case. And so because of that, the, the Roman Catholic Church was insisting that the Vulgate was inspired by God itself, that it was inspired translation, and yet they could just hold up Vala's work and say, hey, this guy worked for the Pope, and he's showing hundreds if not thousands of errors in your infallible translation. Um, so again, very, very important work. It's going to give the Reformers a lot of ammunition. Um, now, Apart from Vala, um, you also had a lot of Renaissance popes, and I did mention art, so I'll briefly talk about that. Um, at first, Florence was the chief center of the Renaissance. It spreads out of Florence. Rome will eventually become the center of the Renaissance because the popes are going to spend a boatload of money to commission projects. You've heard of the Sistine Chapel. You've heard of all of Michelangelo's um, works. Who do you think paid for those? Who do you think, like, the best, most elaborate architecture, sculptures, and paintings that exist in Italy were commissioned by the popes to depict religious scenes from the Bible so that the illiterate masses could at least see a realistic depiction of, of what the Bible says. And you just follow the money. If the Pope is the one dishing out all the money and various popes are doing that, and you're a talented artist, you're leaving Florence, you're leaving Venice, and you're moving to where the money is. It's that simple. Now, it's not to say there weren't great things that were built in those cities, but Rome is going to take the center stage. Um, and so Pope Nicholas V, that was Vala's port patron, he was the first. He founded the Vatican Library, 1453. It is the greatest collection of books in the world to this day, greater than the Library of Congress, greater than Oxford. Um, it is one library where I've daydreamed of breaking in there just to see what's there. But uh, it, don't worry, it ain't ever going to happen. Security's pretty tight. They probably have Swiss bodyguards. Anyhow, um, so greatest collection of books in the world. Um, and, and the Renaissance popes, as I said, they made it into the, the center. They also hired Renaissance musicians. 
Um, you know, and it just pretty much all that stuff, a lot of it was going to be paid for by them. Uh, now, how did the Renaissance influence art? Well, I'm sure you've looked at paintings, and I've even put some up in my slides over, uh, over the lessons where I'd show you certain paintings that existed during that time. And, uh, and in the Middle Ages, they focused mainly on religious subjects. It was very flat two-dimensional. They didn't focus on perspective or anything like that. They didn't so much emphasize scenes from everyday life. They didn't paint people who were just regular people. Um, you know, they only focused on saints and certain kings. Um, and they made their people um, just, they look like just a flat. Like, you look at some of the Middle Ages stuff, and, and my 10-year-old could draw some of that stuff. You know, it, in fact, she does almost every day. But with the Renaissance, they start painting people that look like people. And usually they would, like rich people would pay them, hey, make me the Virgin Mary, you know, and so it would be that person's face. Or, you know, hey, I, I want to be Christ at the Last Supper. All right, well, this guy paid more, so you're Peter, you know. Um, but, but that, so those are real people in those that were alive then, you know, being painted as these characters. But these guys were able to paint in a way where it looked real. The Renaissance art, in terms of objective artistic skills, probably the best there's been. Um, and, and the artistic forms that came after realized you can't get better than that. And so they philosophically said, well, that's, that's dumb art anyway. Let's focus on universals or abstractions. And that's why eventually you get paintings that are all blurry and stuff like that. And, but that would be a different topic for a different time. But I'd say objectively, the Renaissance people, they were, they were the masters. Um, and so they, they painted these biblical scenes that looked like real people. They also painted historical scenes. Uh, Mary, for the first time, was uh, not portrayed as the queen of heaven, but as a young maiden. Um, you know, and some of the famous painters and sculptures, sculptors you guys know are um, some of the famous names would be like Donatello, Leonardo, Raphael, Michelangelo. Um, there's a reason I put those guys first in my mind, because... They're the Ninja Turtles. But you also have uh, Tidian and Angelico and Botticelli. There was a lot of them. But only four of them had swords, size, nunchuck. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so in a lot of these popes, they had a zeal for humanism, but they didn't have a zeal for holiness. And some of the most corrupt popes in history lived during the Renaissance. Some of them were absolutely ruthless. Just look up, if you have time, the Borgia family. Um, I mean, just mobsters. Imagine if the head of the mob became the Pope. I mean, that's really what it was like under the Borgias. But anyhow, so that covers the Renaissance in Italy. Now let me quickly go through the Renaissance everywhere else. It spread to the rest of Western Europe um, in the closing decades of the 15th century. That'd be the 1400s. It hits Germany, France, England, and Spain. One thing that helps is the invention of print and movable type. You probably know where I'm going with this. Gutenberg's printing press. See, before it took forever to copy books. They had to be hand copied. Um, only the rich could afford them. But once you can make this machine where you could take out you know, a letter and replace it with a different letter. You could set the page up, dip it in the ink, and then you could just make that one page thousands of times. You just keep pounding it on the next piece of paper. Then when you're done for the next, you're ready for the next page, you replace all those letters, make the next page as you want it, and boom. So really what you're doing is you're making thousands of one page at once. And then you do thousands of the next. And it might seem timely today. But compare that to handwriting everything. And then when it's all done, you have a thousand copies of this book. 
and then you could bind it. And what happens when there's more of something floating in the economy? What happens to the price? It goes down. And when it goes down, what does that mean about its affordability? Can more people get it or less? More people could get it. And so because of the printing press, ideas start to spread really rapidly. This was as revolutionary for then as the internet was for us. Maybe even more revolutionary. Um, so again, in the printing press is what makes the Reformation possible. People ask, why did Luther succeed, whereas 100 years before him, Jan Hus or John Wycliffe failed? They didn't have a printing press. Now, that's going to be one of the, the chief differences. Um, so again, Johann Gutenberg, uh, 1450, created this printing press. The first book ever printed was the Bible. Um, by 1500, there were over 200 presses operating throughout Europe, and this causes a cultural revolution that, I'm sorry, you just can't exaggerate it. Um, you can't. And it's going to also lead to greater literacy throughout Europe. With more books around and more people getting their hands on books, now more people want to learn to read. And that's where those like uh, Devotion Moderna folks, those brotherhoods, were teaching people to read. You know, mainly so they could read the Bible, but also they would be able to read these other things. So let's go country by country. Uh, it won't be as long as Italy was. So Germany. The Renaissance was more Christian in Germany than it was in Italy. Uh, because a lot of the Italian humanists, even though they were part of the church, they were more interested in Cicero than, than the New Testament. But the German humanists, they, like Petrarch, they tried to blend the pagan and Christian elements together. From the pagans, they adopted how to write and, and Platonism and uh, political ideas. But from the Christian elements, they focused on Christian spirituality, the study of the New Testament and church fathers, and serving God in this world rather than retreating from it. So they're going to be very anti-monk. Um, they were also anti-scholastic because they saw it as a philosophical distortion that took Christ away from the people by making him more complicated than the Bible you know, makes him. So the German Renaissance um, is, is definitely a big deal. And it starts to move away from the scholastic tendency to interpret the Bible allegorically. The Roman church used allegory a lot to justify their unbiblical interpretations. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, by and large, rejects allegory and says it's the plain reading of the scripture. Well, they didn't make that up. The German Renaissance is what started that. Uh, it Really what it was was going back to the Antiochian um, method of interpretation. And the reason why I bring that up is because if you have been paying attention in this course, ideas come back and disappear and then come back again and then disappear. It's like a cycle. So like there's nothing new under the sun for the most part, philosophically. It's just old ideas given new packages. So even back in the early church, do we use allegory or do we do a plain reading and go off what the author says? That's going to come up again and again. And that's one of the big uh, arguments we have today within Christianity. And of course, I would say that we take the Bible for what the authors meant when they were writing it, not what somebody wants to allegorically uh, import into it. But anyhow, more on the German Renaissance. Um, they believed by combining paganism and Christianity that they could create a powerful vision to reform all of society, that they would use education from schools and universities to liberate people from superstition. 
and they could turn people into useful citizens, educated citizens that could then produce actual good stuff for their society. They could cultivate their earthly abilities and be excellent artists, politicians, teachers, merchants, craftsmen, and housewives. This is very important because this is what the whole Western education system was built on. Now, it started off saying we could do all these things for the glory of God. Eventually, the glory of God was removed, and now people want to do these things just for themselves. That's the problem. Um, and so uh, when, if you hear Christians today talking about the cultural mandate, what they mean is let's take all these things back for God and do them under a Christian worldview like it was during this time. Now, the German humanists were also German nationalists. They hated Italians, uh, and they thought that the German people were the most noble-minded people on earth. They're like, yeah, there's a superior people on earth, God's chosen people. Oh, you mean Israel? No, the Germans. You know, that, that's, that's, what they would, uh, that's what they would say. Um, and, of course, they had bad blood with the popes due to all these fights that they had with the Holy Roman Emperor back in the day um, that the popes did. And so anyhow, Martin Luther, why is this important? Because Martin Luther will be able to use this German nationalism to his own advantage in his battles with the Pope. Why doesn't Luther die and get burned at the stake when people 100 years before him did for saying the same things? It's because by his time, Germany was so sick of the Pope that anything they could do to really give him a middle finger, they would do. And so, oh, you want Luther dead? We're going to protect him because he's a German. And he's standing up for the German people. The Renaissance is what created that situation. It's the Renaissance. If not for the Renaissance, it wouldn't have happened. Um, And Christian humanism is going to make a deeper impact on Germany than it will in the other areas. A couple humanists worth mentioning um, that left a major impact. One noteworthy um, German humanist was Johannes Ruchlin. Uh, 1455 to 1522. I like this guy. Um, he set off a huge battle between the, hum- uh, the humanists and the scholastics, and it was over Jews. And he was on the right side of this, in my opinion. He was the first non-Jewish German academic to actually master the Hebrew language, to be able to, to write in it and read it as good as any Jewish scholar could. And he then created the world's first book of Hebrew grammar. Because even the Jews, they knew it, but they didn't create a book on it. This guy wrote Rudiments of Hebrew in 1506, which anybody with that can learn to read and write and translate Hebrew. Um, So this was a gift to the world. And he said, listen, you guys are all focusing on Greek in the New Testament, but two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament. And if we really believe in ad fontes to the sources, then you got to learn your Hebrew too. And you got to figure out how to integrate the Old Testament into your teaching. And the best way we could do that is having friendly relations with the Jews because all they study is the Old Testament. And we can have dialogues with each other. And if we're going to win them to Christ, it's not through persecution. It's through these friendly dialogues and cooperation. Well, as soon as he says that, the Inquisition's like, all right, you've gone too far. And so the Inquisition wants to destroy him and put him on trial just for saying that we should be friendly with Jews. That should tell you something. And he didn't back down. He didn't back down. But there was a, a Jew that converted to Christianity named uh, Johann or Johann Pfefferkorn, 1469 to 1522. And Pfefferkorn almost like had a, a self-hatred. I don't know how, other, how else to put it. Once he be, became a Christian, he said, you know what? All Jewish writings must be destroyed. And so he convinced the, emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor 
to order the confiscation of all Jewish sources so that they could be destroyed. Um, and what's going to happen is, is uh, it's going to be challenged by, um, it's going to be challenged by, uh, um, what's his name, by Ruklin. Um, Ruklin's going to oppose this. He's going to say, no, we need their literature to enhance our understanding of the Old Testament. Um, he said, we will convert them better this way. And so, again, he gets put on trial for heresy, 1514. He would have been killed, but in the court of public opinion, he wins because other German humanists come to his side. And what they do is they anonymously write writings that were satire, that pretended they were Dominicans. Because remember, the Dominicans uh, ran the, the Inquisition. And so these writings pretended they were Dominicans, and it just made them look so stupid. So anybody who read it would be like, stupid Dominicans, you know? And since it was the Dominicans going after Roiklin, it's Roiklin, that's how you pronounce it. Since it was Dominicans going after him, um, public opinion's like, you know what? He's not that bad. It's the Dominicans that are stupid. And so for the most part, even though Rome condemned him in 1520, nothing happened to him. And 1520, okay? What happened in 1517? We just celebrated it yesterday, not Halloween, Reformation Day. Martin Luther nailed, well, at least maybe mailed. There's debate whether he nailed those on the door or just mailed them. But he published his 95 theses, October 31st, 1517. They had three years to produce a storm. By the time Reuchlin was found guilty... The church had bigger fish to fry with Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, so this guy kind of gets forgotten. But uh, but Luther kind of liked what he uh, what he put together. So, just uh, interesting stuff there. Let's talk about France real quick. Um, yeah, I'm definitely not gonna gonna finish today, but I could at least get through um, the Renaissance portion. Um, so Renaissance in France, not as much to talk about there. Christian uh, humanism influenced thinkers in France. Uh, most notably, Jacques Le Ferre, de, de, however you say it, 1460 to 1533. His Latin name is Faber Stapulensis. I can say that. Uh, and what he's going to do is he's going to combine uh, uh, Neoplatonism and Catholic mysticism with the Bible. He actually translates the New Testament into French in 1523, and he translates the Old Testament into French in 1528. A lot of times we hear that Calvin was the first to do that. No, Calvin makes a better translation that actually really sets the French language as we know it today, but it wasn't the first. Again, these guys, these Renaissance people are laying the stage for setting the stage for this. Now, he was a big foe of scholasticism, and the cool thing about him is he arrived at positions. It's amazing what Ad Fontes would do when you go back to the sources. He arrived at positions like the Reformers, he, and this is because he was using the historical grammatical approach to the Bible, that let's take the Antiochian method and just take the plain reading of Scripture, get rid of all this allegory, and what do you find out? Oh, transubstantiation's not in the Bible. So he rejected it. Oh, Augustine was right. We have original sin. And salvation comes in part because of predestination. And so he's saying all this stuff. And so the church condemns him and says, you're a Lutheran. He's like, I reject Luther. They're like, but you believe the same thing. You're a Lutheran. And he's like, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Point is, he didn't think he was a Lutheran, but the Romans thought he was a Lutheran. That should tell you everything you need to know about him. His study of the scripture 
brought him in such disagreement with the Catholics that they, they condemned him, and they would have tried to kill him, but he found safety uh, in the court of Margaret of, uh, of Navarre uh, because she supported reform. Um, and then other French humanists will come to his support. And some of the French humanists that came to support him and argue against the Pope, some of them later joined the Protestant Reformation. So that shows you how close these guys were. Again, the Renaissance, you can't have the Reformation without the Renaissance. That's why I'm spending as much time on the Renaissance as I can. Well, what about those... Uh, toothless people. No, I'm just kidding. What about the Renaissance in England? Sorry, it's just too fun to make fun of. Anyhow, okay, so William Grosselin, 1446 to 1519, and Thomas Lineker, uh, 1460 to 1524, they brought humanism to Oxford. Um, now, the most important English humanist, and he learned from them, was John Collette, uh, 1467 to 1519. Uh, he was the son of the mayor of London. He traveled abroad, got educated um, at Florence's Platonic Academy, 1493 to 1496. Afterward, he'll lecture at Oxford on the letters of Paul. He hated scholasticism, did not like Aquinas, and he became the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, which there's a picture, it's still standing today at the bottom there, but he becomes the dean in 1504, and he preached a lot of popular sermons from biblical texts, expositional preaching instead of Catholic lectionaries. Go figure. You open the Bible, you read it, and you say what it means. And I haven't taught you about them yet. I'm going to save them for the last lesson. But the followers of John Wycliffe were called Lollards. They were reformers before the Reformation. They pretty much believed what the reformers believed, and they broke away from the Catholic Church, and they were pretty much an underground church in England. They showed up to listen to Colette and agreed with his teaching, like this guy's with Wycliffe. Well, listen, Wycliffe and Luther taught the same stuff. So he was a reformer without claiming the Reformation, is my point. He criticized the superstitious worship of relics and images. Martin Luther will do the same thing. Um, and when people wanted to destroy him because he's undermining Rome, King Henry VIII, yes, this is the Henry VIII that kills a lot of wives, but he was more reasonable when he was young. Uh, so he acted as Colette's protector. And so nothing was going to happen to Colette. And with his own money, Colette built St. Paul's School as a place to offer free education to young boys based on Christian humanist ideas of study. And so, yeah, um, almost there, almost there. Another famous English humanist was Sir Thomas More. You've probably heard of him. If you ever in college had to read the book or the work Utopia, he's the one that wrote it. Thomas More is kind of interesting. Uh, so his dates, 1478 to 1535. He was a Latin and Greek scholar, religious writer, politician. Um, but most of what he wrote was against the Reformation. So if you notice his life dates, he's alive during the early decades of the Reformation. And he uses all of his brain power to repudiate the Reformation. But he's still eventually going to get killed for being a heretic. The church will declare him heretical. Um, his own king will. He wrote the most famous English humanist book, though, called Utopia in 1516, where he's criticizing his society by comparing it to what he says is the perfect society. And to this day, we use the word utopia to mean the perfect society. Um, but I don't know if you know this, the word utopia actually is just the Latin word for nowhere. So he's saying there's nowhere in the world like this. Um, and when you read it, it's, I don't think it would be the perfect society, but a lot of philosophers like it, and that's why they make you read it in your first philosophy class in college. 
Um, but the bottom line is he was a devout Catholic. He was a very religiously intolerant guy, killing Protestants. And yet in Utopia, he said there would be a toleration of all religions. Priests would be allowed to marry. But then when Protestants say, hey, priests should marry and tolerate us, he's like, no, die. So it's just kind of weird. His most famous work, he did not follow. Um, he did not live by his own ideals at all. All right, last one, Spain. Talk about Spain and then... Um, I think I'm going to need two more weeks to finish then, <laughs> just to, to be real. Yes. Yes. So, Renaissance in Spain. The leading humanist was uh, Francisco Jimenez de Cisneros, ah, 1436 to 1517. Um, he was a Franciscan friar, uh, and he earned the favor of Queen Isabella. 1492, the same year she commissioned Columbus to go on his journey, she also made uh, um, Jimenez her personal confessor. She confessed to him, uh, you know, her sins. And then in 1495, she made him the Archbishop of Toledo, which was the top religious man in the Spanish church. It's the equivalent of the Archbishop of Canterbury, but only in Spain. Um, so he promotes the humanist way. He founded the University of uh, Alcala in 1500. In 1502, here's where he's very interested, what he's known for, is he commissioned a team of scholars to create an authorized version of the Old and New Testament in Spanish. This is what the King James does over a hundred years later. But in Spain, they do it a lot earlier. So it was a team of scholars. It was completed in 1517, published in 1522. The technical term for it is the Compultensian, uh, sorry, uh, polyglot. And it contained revised Hebrew, revised Greek. So Hebrew Old Testament, a Greek New Testament, a Latin Vulgate, and then all these language aids that are all around it. Um, so this was a big deal. It's going to open the door again for people to make accurate Spanish translations later. Now, Spanish humanism, last thing I'll say about it, is unique from the others that it was the only humanism that could stay friends with scholasticism. Remember, all the other ones hated the scholastics. They actually liked them. They're like, yeah, you know, they're not as big of a problem as, as you think. In fact, Jimenez uh, promoted the works of Aquinas. Um, and he actually founded a group called the New Thomists. Um, and now, of course, they leaned on the parts of Aquinas that were Augustinian, but yeah. So anyhow, that's where I'm going to stop. That covers the Renaissance in all the various countries. I still want to cover two important individuals of the Renaissance, Savonarola, who I alluded to, and then Erasmus. Then I want to talk about witches. Um, and so what I'll do next time is I'll talk about the witches, those two people, and I'll talk about the Greek church up until, their, until Constantinople's destruction, and then we'll have one more lesson after that. So anyhow, um, Luke, could you end the stream and then I'll take questions?